0: For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting AskAmatchmaker.com. This week's guest is author Nancy Joe Sales. Nancy Joe Sales is a New York Times bestselling author and award winning journalist who has written for Vanity Fair and Harper's Bazaar, among others. Nancy Joe famously exposed Hollywood's Bling Ring, a group of teens who broke into the homes of celebrities like Paris Hilton and Orlando Bloom, stealing millions of dollars worth of luxury goods. Kids. She's known for her stories on youth culture, celebrity culture, and the effects of tech on kids, as well as dating and courtship. Nancy's featured documentary, Swiped, Hooking Up in the Digital Age, premiered on HBO in 2018 and is an investigation to how technology has changed the landscape of sex and dating, promoting sexism, sexual harassment, and sexual violence. Nancy Joe's new memoir, Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno, was just released and you can order it. Excuse me. You must order it. By visiting the link in the episode notes. It is the summer reading book of 2021. Nancy Joe, welcome to Ask a Matchmaker.
1: Thank you. Thank you for all that. I am so oh. pleased to be here. So,
0: Nancy Joe, I could not put your book down. Um, this was actually, I wanna give a shout out to um, Elena who told me like, you have to read Nancy Joe's book. And then I read it and I was like, okay, yeah. She has to come on the podcast. I can see why you thought this was an Ask a Matchmaker podcast guest.
1: Oh my God. Thank you so much. And I'm so fascinated with what you do too. And I want to ask you some questions too, because can I ask you a couple of questions? Cause I'm so yes, interested in, in you sure. when you say four generations. So I'm trying to think like, that's just fascinating. What does four generations ago of a matchmaker look like? Who was I know she? right. Who was she and where did she live and what did what did she, what was she all about? So technically
0: I want to say it's 5, but I always say 4 because my mom never really did it professionally, although she has worked for me in the past. Um but her mother was a matchmaker and uh, you know, I'll I'll talk more about I guess my grandmother here. I think that matchmaking was really popular in Greece before 1980. And uh, god, like we could talk about what happened in the late 70s in Greece that would ultimately make love marriages the norm in society over matchmaking. Um, And also like, I think just to kind of give a parenthesis here, you know, Greece was dominated by the Ottoman empire for a really long time. And as a result, you know, Greece never went through a Renaissance period. You know, you look at France and Italy and Spain, you know, there's, there's definitely a Renaissance period that happens there, not just in arts, but you can see it even in architecture it's very different. You know, you know, if you go to Barcelona or Rome or Florence, and then you go to Athens and that has to do with the Ottoman empire, like having full control. And then suddenly, you know, you, there's, you know, no longer the Ottoman empire. So that, that 17th, 18th century Renaissance period is gone. And then you have people that are trying to survive. They're making it through wars. There's World War II where, you know, many Greek people died as obviously as well as Greek Jewish people, but even just Greek people themselves. There was uh, just a lot of things happening in the 40s. And I, I mentioned this because it's all those generational matchmakers lived in those times. So and then in the 60s and 70s, you have a junta. So things are even a little bit more strict you know, there's a dictatorship happening. Uh, But at the same time, all this dictatorship is happening. Villages uh, are suddenly having access to water and access to electricity. There's a lot of different polar opposite of feelings of things happening like life is hard, but it's also becoming easier in a way. And then suddenly, you know, the third democracy is restored in Greece in the 70s. And the glossy magazines were already available in all of these other countries, but suddenly they become available in 1980 in Greece. And you have this entire generation of women that are born and raised in that period, like in the 70s, you know, late 60s and 70s, who have who have access to these glossy magazines that their parents never did, telling them that you too can be an independent woman. You too can have all of these things and have great sex and all that, you know. And then suddenly have this generation of women who just skip out on marriage. They just don't participate in that. And so you have all these like mix of things happening historically, and so when you ask me like about my grandparents and what they did, it's very different. And it's probably also my mom was not involved because my mom is part of that generation that grew up with the dictatorship, and then suddenly glossy magazines where matchmakers are no longer needed, you know for that. It's like now you're going to meet people out at bars or out at a club, you're independent, you know you're given a different flair. And what I do, obviously different is I'm setting up really busy New Yorkers who don't have time to swipe or have privacy concerns about swiping and they'll hire me. But what my grandmother did, because like I said, matchmaking was popular prior to 1980. Uh, What makes a matchmaker a matchmaker is basically being able to have all of the good gossip in the village (laughs) holding onto it. So basically my grandmother was really good at making coffee. And people would come over,
1: oh, great. tell her
0: all of the secrets, and she would hold on to those secrets. And then suddenly when someone would say, okay, hey, I need to match my son or my daughter. Well, who's the best person to go? Do you go to the person who knows everything that's happening in the town, who has debt, who has riches, who, who what's going on? And um, that was my grandmother's responsibility in that community to set people up. Um, but of course the difference again, you know, I'm setting up hoping that they get married in the next three years, whereas she's setting up someone, probably someone that they already might know each other, right? but it's like a blessing sort of thing. And, uh, they're getting married in three months. So it's very different Courtship rituals between
1: the communities. So interesting. As you know, from reading the book, it's, um, about my personal experience. So in that sense, it is a memoir, but it's also what they call investigative memoir because I'm researching history and mm-hmm. studies and data and doing interviews with people in the online dating industry and interviewing online dating users. And this is so interesting to hear because one of the things that I learned when I was doing this book was mm-hmm. I looked back into the history of how people in in this country first started to date and really Women invented dating, you know, it yes. was so, it was so interesting to find that out because prior to the, the early part of the 20th century, like the 19 teens, and especially 1920s, when women started uh, leaving home, leaving rural communities, moving into big cities, living on their own work, working girls who went and worked in factories, and they had this autonomy to um, choose their own mate that they really hadn't had before on right. mass because they were more under the watchful eyes of parents and communities and there was something uh known as parlor dating where they would literally go into the parlor if they weren't that well off to have a parlor they would sit on the front porch or the backyard mm-hmm. or front yard or whatever and they would meet guys women would meet young women would meet men who their parents their community leaders sometimes you know, uh, church leaders or rabbis or you know, mosque right. leaders would would fix them up with, and they would um, find out if they liked the person. But it was all about interrelations and interconnections. And and I don't mean to glamorize the past because I, I tell you right now, knowing my own character and the way that I am as a person, I would have wanted been one of those girls that hopped the train to New York City and got a job in a factory and started dating men on my own. That would have been me because that 's just who I am but and so not to glamorize or romanticize the past, but we do know from an abundance of data, which i 'm sure you 're aware of too, that the most lasting relationships are based on communal ties and and that people who meet each other through shared connections right. and not the kind of illusory shared connections of Facebook or something, but actual shared connections like you met at right. work or you met through a friend or, you know, your cousin introduced you, or you met at a wedding because you all knew the bride and groom, those kinds of matches tend to be more long lasting.
0: And I think that's where we differentiate like dating versus courting, because what you just described is, is not what we define as dating now. Like, I think when I think of dating now, I think of like two complete strangers have to have conversations, not only about their values, but how they define those values,
1: like and so what, often that's unfortunately left completely out oh, of yeah. online dating. I mean, that's just right. that is so important to any um, the building of any true connection or intimacy. Studies have shown that meeting through a friend or through people tends to have a
0: better outcome towards marriage, or if that's the goal, let's say, right, long term relationship. And and, and I, I I agree with you, and I think I think it goes back to you know that value and lifestyle definition. If I met someone through a friend or through my priest or through my parents, there are certain assumptions that I can make. It's like, you know, when sometimes someone says to me, Oh, you know, Greek people, you all stick together or Jewish people, you all stick together. Like there are
1: these comments that come out. I mean, any like stereotype kind of things like that are always so jarring, right? I mean, you know, you know, I never thought about why it
0: was jarring. And then I happened to listen to Jared Freed. He had written something recently on his Instagram. And I was just like, that's what it is. That's what it is. And it was, he said, your parents, our parents put us in summer camp at the age of eight. And that's basically a networking event. Essentially, you know, that way, when you're an adult, you meet other Jewish people and you have this shared experience as children and as teenagers and as young adults, you know, And, and you already know something about them. You have this familiarity with that person that you don't have with other people. And, you know, is it right? You know, that's, that's the beholder of the opinion, I suppose, but is there a shared experience that you have a certain value set and you share those definitions? Yeah. And, and I see that in my own subculture as a Greek American, Um, you know, I'm, I married someone who's also Greek. It was, I never, said he had to be greek it was not it was certainly not even on my top 10 of criteria was it easier that he was greek i, I guess but that wasn't but that's only because that we were able to skip some conversations i think i could have skipped those conversations if he were not greek and i still met him through the same friends because that's how i met my husband i met him through friends
1: what you say is so important Um, especially in the raising of children and raising children who know how to have relationships. You know, I did uh, this book that just came out, nothing personal. It's more of a memoir, investigative memoir, but I also six years ago, did that uh, five, six years ago did a book called American girls, social media and the secret lives of teenagers. That's all about how uh, tech is disrupting the lives of girls in, in, in very, very challenging ways. And one of the things that I have seen over decades now of covering youth culture is that kids are less involved in social activities where they learn just purely how to have, you know, friendships in person, in person friendships, you know, also the kind of learn how to have the kind of baby steps that lead to relationships. Like I go to schools, And give talks, especially around the the publication of that book. I went to a lot of schools. And one of the things that we often talk about is nudes, because nudes are such a scourge. You know, there's there's um, I've talked to girls who get asked for nudes in sixth grade or get sent unsolicited nudes in sixth grade. And it's, you know, starting very, very young. And so what I came to find out through these talks that I would give and talking to kids in schools is that very often they're exchanging nudes or getting unsolicited nudes or getting asked for nudes and all that kind of thing before they've ever held hands or hung out like with a a boy, a girl, or, or, you know, whatever, whatever gender or sexual orientation somebody is, they're not learning now at the same level, the kind of Baby steps you need to take towards intimacy. I wish every kid would watch a documentary film called The Octopus Teacher. My, my Octopus Teacher. Did you see that film? I did not. You would love it. It's, it's, a, it's a film. It was nominated for Academy Award. And it's about a man's relationship with an octopus. But really, what, and she's this little octopus. She's only about this big. And I'm, it's, she's like the size of a football with these long, beautiful tentacles. But what it's really about is about intimacy and how to become intimate with someone. he She is a different species, but they develop a relationship that's extraordinarily close. Wow. And it develops over time. It develops over shared experiences where they are together and seeing each other go through things, especially he observes her life and gets to know about her. Sometimes she's scared of him, she runs away. And then, you know, he watches her whole basically life cycle because octopuses don't live very long, unfortunately. And it's, it's sad in the end, but really I thought to myself, this is what we're losing. This is, you know, this is what we're losing is the ability because everything's so mediated now through tech, through dating platforms, through Instagram, through Facebook, through Twitter, through the multiple, multiple ways that people, you know, navigate their intimate spaces through tech companies. Now we're losing those serendipitous, spontaneous, in-person, real, natural, organic ways of connecting and getting to know each other and find love with another being. And that, that is one of the things that I, I sort of bemoan about the digital age is the effect that it's having on not just kids, but adults too, and their ability to connect. You know, it's supposed right. to this is the great irony, is that it's supposed to make us more able to connect. It's supposed to be so convenient and so quick. That's kind of almost what's wrong with it, is that it's too quick.
0: Right. I feel like we can blame technology on a lot of things, but I also think in this newer generation, there's also I'm not I don't say the word blame, that's a bad word, but I think there's also some responsibility on parents too. And let me let me tell you what I mean by 100%, 100%. that. I have and it's not I don't think it's gonna be the way you think it is. So I have notice an uptick in the last three or four years, three years, that an inordinate amount of people, men and women are adult virgins. Like they have no dating experience at all. I'm not a statistician. I have not done the study, but if just in my own professional experience, I would say that one in four young adults have not had a sexual experience before the age of 30.
1: I'm not surprised that you think that at all. And I'll tell you, I mean, I actually write about it in the book, but go ahead.
0: And I don't want to talk about that, but like, I want to tell you from like my own experience um, by having noticed that, especially as a matchmaker, like, you know, I had to set these people up sometimes too, if they decide to hire us, I asked them like, well, tell me why you didn't have any dating or sexual relationships until now, like what's going on. And the amount of people that say to me, you know, I just wanted to concentrate on my career. That's always the reason. And then I asked them, well, tell me more about your parents. And it's like, oh, well, my, and what I'm, what I get at is that sometimes it's not, yes, technology can make it easier or harder to meet people that's, you know, depending on the circumstance. But I also feel like there is this responsibility to the parents as well, who don't give their children, not just the tools, but the opportunity for mixed company. Let's say if we're talking about heteronormative now, mixed company, interpersonal communication
1: opportunities. Well, a hundred percent. You know, I don't know if you know the uh, feminist writer, Laura Bates. Mm-hmm. She's British, and she's done this really great book recently called Men Who Hate Women about the really ugly, scary corners of the internet that are all about the incels and the... Right. And it's an intersection in my book, too, is that a discussion of, of the rise of you know really extreme misogyny online and how, that, how this plays into the dating space, too. But what she and I got into a discussion about was how parenting you know we we know that there are um these sort of predatory websites that like literally like this isn't some conspiracy theory like Laura lays it out really really well in her book and she she goes into how she posed as a young man online to see how they are preyed upon by these websites and these misogynistic communities and what's called the manosphere to you know, draw them into this like extreme misogyny and stuff. And it's really scary because it has real, real consequences in real life. But the other thing that she and I started talking about that I think is so important to note is how parents are, for the very reasons you describe are unwittingly promoting misogyny by not allowing their young boys, their boys to, engage in kind of like very natural and so social activities with girls. There's too much pressure on girls and boys to achieve their time is like completely strapped. They, they, you know, you have to study for your ACT and then you have your Mm -hmm. flute lesson and then you have, uh, you know, then you have this and tomorrow's your soccer game. And, you know, there's not a lot of time to do what, you know, my mother describes, you know, my mother's 85 and I talk about her a lot in the book too. And, you know, things were never perfect. Again, I'm not, believe me, I'm not glamorizing the past and a million terrible things happened to me along the way, like going back to the 1960s and 70s. But, we have talked about this. And as someone who is older, she talks about, yeah, we would just like go to the soda shop and Mm -hmm. like after school and there'd be boys there and, you know, not everyone is straight. I'm not saying that, but in her day there was this intermingling of boys and girls in more natural kind of circumstances than we have now. And it was unstructured time in which they would do things like dance. They would like, put you wouldn't have to be necessarily dating someone to, Um, dance with them to a a few songs on the jukebox at, at the soda shop. And, you know, these kind of low stress, not sexualized. That's really a really important element of all this is that they're not sexualized. Like my daughter is 21 now, but she went to a few, she went to an all girls school in New York, but she, she did go to a few of those dances that they have now. And she was really turned off. And I was turned off too as a parent by how much, pressure and stress there was on the girls to get a dress and have hair and makeup and and be like this kind of perfect you know sexy looking teenager at this dance and it was it's really too much there's too much sexualization there's not enough just natural talking being together whether you're a girl boy or, or whatever identity you have and so I think that that's absolutely true. And to your point, and I just want to answer what you just said about people not having sex. You're absolutely right. There is. I really. I. I mean. I've experienced this too in my interviews, and I talk about it in my book. And there's there's studies and there's data about it too that people seem to be having quote unquote less sex. I sometimes reject that framing of it though because I think that what they're not what they're what they mean when they say that they say young people are having less sex as if that's a good thing. And some of my friends who are moms of teenagers say, "Well, isn't that a good thing? They shouldn't be having sex. They're too young." But I think that there's a blindness about what kind of what sex really is now and what, what we're talking about. Like if you're talking about an era in which uh, dick pics have been normalized and and girls tell me they're getting them in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you're talking about an era in which porn is mainstream and boys are starting to watch it. An
0: era where a man chokes you the first time you have sex.
1: Yeah. And you're talking about, I think what they're not taking, they mean intercourse. When they, when you see these studies that say people are having less sex, young people are having less sex. They mean intercourse. Mm -hmm. They're not talking about the, the different myriad, different kinds of sex people are having. There's a whole lot of masturbation, masturbation to porn, masturbation to nudes, masturbation to conversations that take place on dating apps, boys and young men tell me that they go on a dating app not to find love and connection and get married like the dating apps promise but to jerk off to some real life woman having a sexting chat with them you Mm -hmm. know and i'm not blaming them either i'm just saying and i'm not judging them either i'm just saying that like when we see these studies that say less sex we're not they're not these these researchers are not looking at the whole picture of what Mm -hmm. is really going on and the the final answer to your, you know, all these important points that you raised. The other thing I think is that, um, and I I talk about this in my book, if it is true that young people are in fact having less intercourse and less in-person meetings and, and, And sexual experiences I am not surprised at all based on what it's like when that happens because when I went and had these some of these experiences that I talk about in the book with with younger men that I encountered on dating apps a lot of time it's not fun like it's not what I remember like that kind of hookup sex being because I've it's not like I only started having hookup sex in the age of hookup when we're talking about hookup culture I mean one night stands always existed and and you know, I've had them before, but they were way better. And in the past, and they were way more fun because people were more able to communicate in bed because they were not thinking about porn. They were not taking moves from porn so much. I mean, there was porn, but it wasn't like readily available and men watching it several times a day, which a lot of them do now. And so I think, yeah, like a lot of hookup sex is bad. Like there's a, there's actually a a trans person in my film. I did a documentary film in 2018 swiped hooking up in the digital age. And I love the moment when they, they say hookup sex is bad, (laughs) you Mm. know? And so, because, you know, I just, I'm just referencing their comment because I just, it's not just me, but it's not just like I'm older. And so like, I, I didn't have the right experience or something. This seems to be a trend, right? So If you, if you are getting off to masturbation, nudes, porn, whatever, if you don't know how to have, forget about a relationship with someone, a conversation with someone, because you have been overstrapped for scheduling your whole life as a kid, and you've never even been in a room with, with an, a person of the, the sex that you're attracted to, that isn't some like high pressure thing where you all have to like get your picture taken a million times for Instagram and look perfect, huh? you know, and it's just so scary. And if, when you have maybe gotten into a situation where there's, a possibility to have sex. Somebody starts doing something really weird because they've seen it in porn, and it's not what you want, but they think that's what they're supposed to do because of porn, mm-hmm. like choke you or be violent. I mean, is it any surprise? Like, is it right. really any surprise that people that young people are like, I'm just going to opt out of this whole thing, but then they need somebody like you. They need some. Eventually, they're lonely enough, yeah. or they're they're a- alone or lonely enough to know that they need help, they need help to try and figure this all out because they haven't been given the tools to do it themselves. Does any of that like resonate with what you're hearing from your clients?
0: It, it does. It absolutely does. And that's why I want to I wanna tell you two things. Like if you, it's funny, like I'm Greek, right? And so people always assume I'm a Greek matchmaker, but I don't have a lot of Greek clients. I usually have maybe one Greek client a year and they're only hiring us because they're that wealthy or that busy. Like they have to, they have, they can only use me. They don't have other options, right? And the reason when people say like, why don't Greek people, hire you is because Greek Americans specifically, and like myself as well, we have been raised under this organization called Goya, Greek Orthodox Youth Association. It's something that you belong to for thir- for 10 years, right? And what you do there is you have dance competitions, like Greek folk dancing competitions across the country. You have Greek theater. In fact, I coach Greek theater for um, a, my community here. My mom did for 28 years and I took over. And In these groups where you have, um, they also have like, we also have um, co-ed volleyball teams and like all the communities. There's like 18 communities in the state of New Jersey. So just imagine how many communities are in other states. They all compete with each other. So you see, people in your Goya, in your community four times a week. So which meant when I was growing up and even the kids that I coach today, they see, they have interpersonal communication activities that are not phone related. It's pure dance, theater, sports, co-ed. You have to learn how to speak to each other so that when they Greek Americans become adults, they already know how to talk to people. They already know how to meet people. They're their own matchmakers. I don't have to get involved at all right but then
1: and i have are one way that people have always met people of you know similar interests similar ties some you know close and family so that way
0: you just said that knowledge of like yeah our parents are overscheduling us but they're overscheduling us in social environments that have nothing to do with like can you get into harvard
1: with this like so soul crushing my daughter's private school which is an amazing school and i I have nothing bad to say about the school and I really have nothing bad to say about the parents either, because I think that they're all, you know, they're feeling the pressure too. And they think that this Mm -hmm. is good parenting. They think this is how they're going to do good for their children. But my daughter's school in the beginning of the year, they bring the parents into the auditorium and they say, they read off these index cards. They have asked the girls to write down what they want the parents to know, right? And what they typically would say, and the first time I heard it was in seventh or eighth grade. because that's the first year she was there. They say things like, tell my dad, I don't want to go to Harvard. Tell my mom, it's okay. If I'm not skinny, tell my dad and my mom, I can't study till two in the morning. I'm tired. Like all you look around and all these parents are just like staring at their laps. Like they are so ashamed, but I don't know that it changed their behavior, but it really, really should, because this is what these girls wanted them to know, you know? And then they read an index card that said, tell my mom, (laughs) everything she does is great. And I was like, that's my kid. I know she said that. And so (laughs) I went home and I woke her up and I was like, what did your index card say? And she said, everything you do is great. And that's because I let her be. I let her play by herself. I watch her. I don't want her to get in trouble or anything. I don't give her a phone ever, ever. But you don't? No. I mean, she has one now, but she never hardly uses it. In fact, it drives me kind of nuts sometimes. So I have to get in touch with her and she's never on it. It's it's always on airplane mode. She reads books. I'm not, you know, I know parents get into this thing where like, I'm so good to a great parent and you're not, and I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say like, she is not, they want to tell you that their their children are going to be somehow harmed if you don't give them a phone. It's quite the opposite. She tells me that she looks around the library in college when she's studying and she's like, mom, nobody can pay attention. They're right. all like, they look at the phone and they, and they study, and they look at the phone and they study." She's like, I don't get it. They can't. And this is what the studies bear out too. So really, I know you say it's like, I know, I understand what you're saying. Like, it's not just tech. It's parents too, but it's like the parents giving the kids tech way too early.
0: As you've been speaking, um, it made me think of, I don't know if you read um, Caitlin Flanagan in The Atlantic. She wrote this amazing article last year called Private Schools Have Become Truly Obscene. And it has to do with like this, this sort of, you know, if you're paying this much money, especially for Manhattan private schools, what are the expectations of your children? And if your expectations of your children is that they must be Ivy League and they must already be like, you know, year three into economics, even though they're a freshman, then where is the room to have downtime for interpersonal communication to develop? So like, look, the apps can be used in a very healthy way and they exist, but if it's the person, I think you said this in a recent interview that like the internet's not the tool. We are the tool.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I respect your, your opinion that apps can be used in a healthy way. I don't agree with that though. I think they're unhealthy. I mean, I don't think it's just private schools though. Oh no, it's it's public schools public... have the same issues. Yeah, a lot of public I I re- recently interviewed someone, a young woman for something that I'm working on. And she, that has to do with um, public school, all schools and how they report sexual assault. And she said that she had a, a like a breakdown in her senior spring. She had a lot of issues and panic attacks because she didn't get into the college of her choice, even though she was doing everything right and getting all good grades. And so, yeah, there's just way too much, there's way too much pressure on all of them. And it does actually, I think you raised such a good point. No one I've talked to has has done that yet. And you're so absolutely right that a lot of this has to do with the pressure that's put on on, on all kids to achieve, achieve, achieve. And it's, I think it's beyond private school's um, cause I see it in the public schools too, and it does affect their ability to form and have relationships and no wonder hookup like culture when they get to college is so prevalent because you know, like
0: it's kind of like drinking. I went to undergrad in Europe where there are no drinking laws. So here's what happens in the, and here's, I think what's happening in this country, in the United States, drinking is banned until you're 21. So suddenly when you have the freedom in college and you don't have the watchful eye of your parents or whatever, and you have access to alcohol, even if you're under 21, you might abuse alcohol. You might binge drink. I mean, God, and only in America do people play with their alcohol with like those drinking games, right? I don't know any other country that does stuff like that. But then um, shit faced. Exactly. The goal is to get drunk. And then it's the same thing. It's like, oh, I didn't have access to sex. Now I'm now I can hook up culture. It's like these extremes that happen.
1: Well, I don't think it's just that though. I think it's also, you know, the other element that, that comes into this too. And why I think dating apps are not healthy, especially for women is -hmm. misogyny. This misogynistic culture that's really gotten worse and worse. And a lot of people have asked me, what was your biggest revelation? You know, using dating apps or, or researching this book. And one of the biggest revelations that I had is that millennial men are really sexist and they are, this is borne out in studies that they are more sexist than their fathers. I mean, sexism exists. Really? Yes. Well, it's in the books. Misogyny exists. Sexism exists. We can finally talk about it and not hopefully have people say, oh, well, you know, what about, what about, what, you know, not engage in whataboutisms and try and tell us that we don't have like a systemic problem here. We do. And um, it's gotten worse among this generation. And I was so shocked by this and I think it has everything to do with, well, there's a backlash against feminism and started in the eighties and nineties, but also the rise of internet porn, the, the Silicon Valley being like so much of our life and so many, so much of the things that we do all the time, every day being on platforms that have been designed in a culture and a bro culture. I mean, I'm not the only person to say this. There's a book by Emily Chang, mm. "Rotopia." It's just very sexist, bro culture, but you know, look at the statistics about Silicon Valley and their hiring of women. It's abysmal. They're hiring of women in high positions down to like, well, not down, but you know, to, to like engineers and coders, it's just, it's abysmal. There's actually, there's actually been like a congressional investigation into it, a labor department investigation. Sorry. So I, I think that we have this very sexist industry designing platforms on which people are doing everything now and design. There's a design, there's a design bias. There's design bias, right? Like things don't just get designed like like tech is not designed naturally, like it doesn't grow out of the ground like an orange tree. it's designed by people who have biases about certain things, and when they ca- they come from this like misogynistic so what do you think is- about
0: bumble? I mean, I'm going to have to beg the question here. What do you think about Bumble that's designed and operated by women?
1: Well, no, it was not. I do not agree with that. In fact, Tinder sued Bumble for stealing its design, and they settled out of court when you all have heard who was the marketing person for Tinder. She was accused by Tinder of taking the design. And the only really different innovation in it was that women message first. It's like a Sadie Hawkins day dance kind of idea that women message first and that will make everything okay. I think that calling Bumble feminist is marketing. I don't think it's real. Whitney Wolf, it was not her idea. She only owns about 20% of it, which has made her extremely wealthy. And, you know, I've interviewed like in my film Swiped, I interviewed like this feminist dating historian named Zoe Strimple who says, but how is this feminist? Because it just codifies this idea that women have to do more work because they, you know, are doing the reaching out and the maintaining of the the connection and all this kind of things. So um, there's still just the, the very fact that there are rapes and sexual assault that happen on Bumble all the time that you can Google. And and that there is no reporting th- to speak of for it, nor do the companies bear any responsibility or do anything about it. And people have gone on Bumble and seen their rapist or their sexual assaulter, and then he's on Tinder, and then he's back on Bumble. How can this be called feminist? I mean, I, I just don't, I reject that completely.
0: I'm just asking the question that some people might be thinking here, but like, no. but no, the no. same rapes could also happen if you met someone
1: at a bar. Well, that's what they say that's what they like to say but you know as a matchmaker you're the perfect person to understand why that's not a valid kind of objection to to this argument that you're not feminist if you're not doing anything about rape when you when you i'm i'm curious to know when you match up people do you vet them Mm -hmm. of course of course course you do why do you vet them i'm I'm terrified of getting sued (laughs) Well, guess what? Dating apps cannot be sued because of section 230, which is the, that aspect of internet law, which absolves third party platforms from any actions on the platform. It's very controversial and it needs to be changed. It needs to be amended, especially to, to address this very problem. Things like people, you know, live streaming someone's murder. And being on Facebook for hours before it gets taken long, right. I would argue that dating apps are creating an atmosphere in which men feel entitled to sex. They're known as hookup apps, and when women don't comply with their requests, demand whatever, they become insistent. And this is the NCA, which is the National Crime Organisa- uh, uh, Agency of England, which is like of UK, which is like their FBI. Did a study showing a 40, 450% rise in rape and sexual assault connected to online dating. And they talk wow. about a quote unquote, new kind of sexual offender who is not someone who has any history or is less likely to have any history of rape or sexual assault, but who, who is coming to dating in this environment of expectation of entitlement that they are going to get sex. And they argue in this report, which you can also Google it's online, it's from 2016, that this is creating a mindset that is more likely to cause a man who wouldn't necessarily have this in his background to be insistent about sex in a way that's unacceptable.
0: You mentioned, you've said in the past, ever in the stand, misogyny was not invented by dating apps. It was weaponized by them. And so to that point, I'm saying, okay, if it's weaponized by them, that means that this misogyny existed. It's just now has a tool for, I guess, a higher turnover.
1: Well, and that's exactly what makes it unhealthy for women, I think, and other people too, for anybody to enter the space um, in which you might, I mean, like the high, high number of women on 57%, I think. I don't know the exact data. It's in my book. It's more than half of women on dating apps have received an unsolicited dick pic. This is not something I think that we should normalize or laugh off. It's like, oh, ho, ho. you know, That's what women have started to do because it's like you can't do anything but laugh. You know, I recently saw Gina Davis. She was interviewed about the 30th anniversary of *Thelma and Louise*, and, and which is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> and she said that one of the really radical things that they did when they made that movie was to make it funny, because it's about a woman killing a rapist, shooting him in cold blood, and it's also a comedy. Right. Because, and I thought that was really radical and and powerful too, because. So often women deal with this stuff and they we do just laugh it off because what else can you do at a certain point? It's like, I mean, a guy is like showing you a picture of his dick. That's absurd. That's insane. It's also really, really offensive and traumatizing for some, a lot of people. So, I mean, these are like the normalized things that happen on dating apps. It's not all, you know, like I understand that there are people who have used them and never experienced any of this and who have only had good experiences and found love in marriage. But, and that's fantastic. And I, and I, and I'm happy for those people, but what about all the other people? What, what about all the other people that this is happening to? Are they not important? Is their experience not as important? Of course it is. In fact, I think the default should be not like, Oh, but people are getting married, but Oh, the default should be, there are people getting raped. We need something to do something about that right now. That mm-hmm. should be the focus in. And yet you know, when you say that, it's like, oh, you're a party pooper, or like, oh, you just don't believe in love or something. I wish I didn't. You know, I, I I wish I I wish I didn't feel, you know, so invested in love and sex and dating. I wish I wasn't so interested in it because it would make my life a lot easier. I I love weddings. I love you know people getting together. I love the end of Shakespeare plays when the wedding happens. And I tried to end my. I tried to end my documentary film with a wedding that happened on Hinge. And we went and shot it in in Mexico and Cancun and we shot the whole thing and everything. But you know, when you peeled back the layers of what was really going on there, it wasn't, it was just like more part of the same thing, which is which what I mean is that, and I talk about it in the book, was that the lovely couple, I I really, really love them. Like we're still friendly. Casey and Stacey were their names. And Casey is a really sweet guy. Stacey had been on dating apps forever, never found a guy who wanted to commit. It was Casey who decided he became the decider in the whole thing. So the app once again becomes the guy deciding this, you know, it's like a tool for men to decide hot or not, swipe left or right, fuckable or not, hot or prototype. not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, relationship material or not, marriage or not. And I think that that is a symptom of, you know the same kind of inequality, like you say, that existed before dating apps and still exists after, but it's not changing it. It's making, I think, making it worse. I
0: mean, one of the things that shocked me in your book too is when you mentioned that men had learned how to weaponize the word feminism. Like if they called themselves a feminist in their profiles. Oh, oh my yeah. god! I wish yeah. I wish people could see your face because your face just went from like like a face of like
1: disgust. Well, it's called a soft boy. It's called there's a fuck boys oh, okay. and soft boys. You know. Okay this is not, I, I hate men thing. I had a relationship, sorry, situationship with a, a guy who kind of turned into a fuck boy for four, almost five years that I talked about in the book. Like, found, yes. And I found um, a lot of companionship and fun and good sex with him. So it's not like I'm not aware that this can happen on these apps, but I actually watched him turn into a fuck boy through using apps through, through watching porn, which he had never watched before. Cause he came from a, small town where there was no internet you know internet wow. in this house. He was grew up poor so he comes to new york he's got um you know he's good looking in new york city which is full of like really interesting beautiful smart a- accomplished women who i'm sure you yeah. meet all the time in your in your work who who don't have time to have relationships you know or, fi- yeah. or find a guy and, and and they are um they want sex too so he he he, and there's nothing wrong with that. And he availed himself of them <laughs> a lot more and more and more. And, um, he was not, so that's the fuck boy is like somebody who has sex with a lot of different women often through availing themselves of technology, not just dating apps. I mean, Instagram is also They're
0: perfect at the first date and they know exactly what to say to get the sex.
1: Yeah, and there's yeah, kind right. of like a misleading,
0: I think, with a fuckboy. It's like, oh, you know, we're well, let's just take it day by day. Or yeah, do you need yeah. a title. I thought we were 2021. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what a fuckboy is. Okay, what yeah. is a soft boy?
1: Okay, so soft boy has it's a fuckboy in in uh, feminist man's clothing or something. Like they might put that they're feminist in their profile. And they might um, say all the right things, but in a different way. Like, you know, I really, I really love reading the work of, you know, some feminist writers. <laughs> they really, you know, act really sensitive. And they're, but they're just a fuck, they're just doing the same fuck boy thing. But they're, they're excusing it through basically doing whatever they want and not considering your needs. But they're excusing it through being in touch with their emotions and, and you you know, like just wanting us to all be very emotional here and present, you know, they're
0: more philosophical. I feel like I've dated a lot of soft boys now that you've given me the they're vocabulary bullshit. for it.
1: They're yeah. Justin Garcia, who's the research director for Kinsey Institute, sex told me that this is the biggest change in dating and mating since the agricultural revolution, 10 to 10 to 15,000 years ago. So all my dating. Yes. Yeah. So we're sort of like the frog in the pot. Uh, you know, like not realizing like it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and we're about to boil. But this is, I think, you know, really challenging for everyone and men too. I mean, a lot of men hate online dating too. Good guys who don't like the impersonality of the anonymity, the ghosting, the you know, the, the coarseness and the callousness of it. And they, they reach out to me too. And I hear from them too. I just don't think that there's any reason except unless you are brainwashed by corporations to think that this is the only way to date and you know from your own work that it's not the only way to date people are exhausted because you are laboring you are doing free labor for corporations it is not about finding you love and that's not something to get depressed over that's something to be empowered by to take back your power meet people in person and meet people whether it's through I don't know, through a matchmaker, through, I have yeah, ideas. of that yeah, people, <laughs> right. yeah, I've started to meet people through, and this sounds super nerdy. And I, I apologize how super nerdy it is, but I've started to meet people through playing chess in the pandemic. I started I playing online chess yeah. and I started to meet people that way. So, That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, you can meet people in, in, and, can. and you automatically have something in common, which is you like to play chess. I've had a, couple
0: hundred people get into relationships this year, not so much through matchmaking, but through the advice I'm about to give, which is like how to meet someone, how to meet someone during a pandemic in real life. And that is, Oh, that's great. Taking advantage of the online resources that get you offline. So I'm a big, big, big supporter of meetup.com eventbrite.com go on there and select like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to go out every Tuesday for the next three months, pick a day that fits there. I also believe that this is going to be the year, the summer, and then the fall of the birthday. If you have a friend who has a birthday in July and August, you need to call them and be like, are you having a birthday party? Because you need to invite me. Start forcing your friends to introduce you to their friends. Like push it. Like
1: like it used to be, like like yeah. we're saying that it used to be, and we don't want to go back to the past when when women were controlled, but we do want to take what was good in the past, and what was good was that people helped each other to find love. We yeah. helped our friends. We used to do it, you know, even when I was a young woman. I mean, I we, still do it. I'll it. We no, well, no, I know it's your job, but we used to do it. We had dinner parties. That's where I met my 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 first husband at a dinner party. We used to have these, I describe it in the book. I mean, that marriage wasn't any better roses, but I did get married to a guy. I had thought we had gone to college together and I knew him in college, but then because of our mutual friends in college, we had dinner party and uh, he was there and we fell in love and got married. So we used to do these things for each other. We used to, we weren't like thinking like, oh, I am having this dinner party so my friends can get married. But that was kind of in the back of your mind. Sometimes you would think like, oh, you know, she, he's not seeing anybody, and she's not seeing anybody. Maybe they'll like each other. I mean, you know?
0: I had a client recently get into a relationship because she joined Meetup at my suggestion, and she joined a Spanish class that meets virtually. And there was a person in the class. I have also had a lot of clients meet men by joining Toastmasters. You know, you're I've there to learn how to public speak, but hey, I told
1: this story. I've told this story before, but it, it's very, you know, it, it, it's very relevant to what we're talking about right now. So this all started for me. This whole you know, subject matter started for me really in 2015, I did this story that went viral called Tinder and the dawn of the dating apocalypse. Right? I remember that. I love millions that and millions of people read it because it, it was the very first story in a mainstream publication to critique online dating. And I, and I didn't really critique it. I critiqued it through the users. Users were telling me. But th- this there's a line in the story that made Tinder very angry. Someone says Tinder sucks. This is very early on, you know, when when it was just really first widely adopted. So one of the guys in the story who was like, you know, your typical online dating kind of fuck boy. He was, a, you know, handsome Wall Street bro, and he's called Alex in the story, the Tinder King, and he he um, was having sex with a different girl every night of the week, and that's kind of how it was back then, you know, when these first things first came out, and I think I compare it to like the bag of dog food being spilled on the floor and the dog just doesn't know when to stop eating it's like people were just like wow look what you can do now you know it's so easy to have sex blah 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 and young guys in New York who were uh you know had good jobs and were cute were just really going wild well cut to several months later he and I stayed in touch we were you know became really good friends and because I don't again I don't judge anybody for what they're doing like I think that this all of this stuff is affecting all of us in ways that isn't like our fault. I mean, of course you have to take responsibility at some point for how you treat people, of course, but the trends are, are corporate driven. So he texted me and he said, what do you do if you feel like you're going to kill yourself? This wasn't because he wasn't succeeding in online dating. This is because he was overly successful in the sense that, you know, fuckboys kind of rate their success. There was too many, too, too many anonymous hookups Uh, too much alcohol, too much cocaine. And I told him go to the emergency room and he did. And he um, went to rehab for all of those things. There's dating app rehab now. What does that tell you that you really can get addicted to this stuff? And he, his therapist told him, you have got to find a hobby. You've got to find something that you will do that is not online dating, you know? So he started swing dancing and he became this big guy in the swing dancing community and he met the love of his life swing dancing. Now that sounds corny and silly and not everybody wants to swing dance. I, I get that, but there are other ways to meet people right. than through dating apps and the dating apps have set up this, you know, kind of impossible situation for a lot of people where it's not going to lead to a relationship. And we know that from data. So I say it's empowering and it is liberating to just get off them and try and meet people in myriad other ways that you can.
0: Nancy Joe Sales, thank you so much for joining me on Ask a Matchmaker. Thank you. I uh, I really appreciate, um, you know, you know what I love about your book and also you and anyone listening to this, I know it can get a little discouraging, especially if you're online dating, but you come from a place of knowledge and statistics and studies and, and historical context. And I think that is what, I really appreciate about you and what I also really loved about not only your book but all the articles that you've written in the past that I really enjoy reading.
1: Thank you so much. And I and what I love about you is that you are helping people to find true connection, true lasting connection, and that's so important in this world. That's what everybody is missing and needs. Thank you. If people
0: want to follow you and buy your book, I'm going to put first of all I'm going to put the link to buy your book in the episode notes. So if you haven't purchased it while I've been speaking, go buy it. It's such a fun read. It's a really interesting read. Definitely the summer book of this of this year. <laughs> um, and if you want to follow Nancy Joe, check her out on Twitter and Instagram, Nancy Jo Sales.
1: And I have a website, nancyjosales.com. And you can see um, if you want to check out the book and reviews of it and links to buy it and all that stuff. There's all different places you can go.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for joining me on Ask a Matchmaker.
1: Thank you. And thank you for listening to
0: Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and how I can help you visit agapimatch.com, the link is in the episode notes. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matchmaker Maria for more dating and relationship content. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more
1: importantly, be likable. See you next week.